Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here. Jason Collier here. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. Objective Analysis. Jim's been on the show a number of times before. Ray and Jim recently attended the Flash Memory Summit Conference in Santa Clara, and Jim moderated a number of panels there. So Jim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what was your most interesting takeaways from the conference? Well, I'm an industry analyst following memory markets, most of all, but the semiconductors in general. Um, Been doing that for a number of years and uh, try to spend every year that I can, you know, after COVID, I'm starting over again, but try to spend every year that I can at the Flash Memory Summit, just because there are a lot of exciting things that go on there. Yeah, it seems like it's broadened considerably beyond just Flash. Yeah, yeah, they're they're trying that intentionally, just because there's a lack of any real conferences to cover other memory technologies, and Flash is the second largest memory technology. DRAM <laughs> yeah. outshines it. Ah, huh. interesting. So what do you think was uh, was the pretty hot topics that came out of Flash Memory Summit? Well, something, Ray, that was really interesting was that, that the first morning, when you wouldn't really expect a lot of people to show up, there were a couple of market sessions to talk about what was going on with the market, uh, you know, the current status of things. And those were uh, standing room only audiences. So people went out of their way to listen to analysts, myself included, talking about what we thought um, was going on with the marketplace. And that just kind of shows that there's um, still an awful lot of unease and, um, you know, interest in what's going on in the market. Yeah. 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 So what is going on with the market these days? Um, It's, uh, I like to say that there are three phases for memory pricing. The memories during a shortage, they stay flat, sometimes go up. And um, then when there's uh, uh, when that shortage turns into an oversupply, then they collapse to cost. And those are usually pretty alarming collapses. In the case of the most recent one, prices of DRAM fell at about 70%, 70%, not 17 So you know, it's like a big fall. And after that happens, then the prices track costs, which follow a Moore's Law kind of a decline until the next time there's a shortage. So we're, we're at that point now where uh, prices are at cost and manufacturers are not going to be making any profit until a shortage gets, you know, achieved. And it's again. all cyclical, right? These things yeah, follow yeah. one after another, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, I keep on hearing people say, well, this time it's different. <laughs> and I say, well, no. <laughs> it's never different. Like, no. especially in technology, history tends to repeat itself. It's like a stuck record for those people who remember what an LP was like. Yeah, yeah. Well, us graybirds all remember that stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, so the market's where it's at, and uh, we'll expect another cycle here showing up here shortly. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, and what what we expect to see, well, it's, it's not too clear, and even the captains of the industry, the people who were on the earnings calls, they, when, when they are asked by investors, when are things going to get better? They say, well, we expect to see things uh, get back into a normal kind of a track somewhere in the middle of next year. But they don't say that with a whole lot of commitment. So I'm not expecting to uh, see 
you know, I, I, I don't believe that that's really a firm thing. And I don't have a real way to analyze the numbers in a way that uh, predicts that accurately. This is a demand-driven cycle. And it's really easy to predict the fate of supply-driven cycles when, when people overinvest in capacity. But when demand undergoes a big change, which is what we had with um, the return to work from COVID, when everybody stopped using Zoom for uh, you know all of their meetings and when kids started actually going to school instead oh, of doing stuff, online yeah. schooling and people started going back to movie theaters, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that, that ended up causing the uh, hyperscalers to stop investing in uh, infrastructure to support all of that. And that rippled down through all the different hardware channels of the people who were, you know, shipping to those hyperscalers. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so what's what's next from your perspective, uh, always of interest at the- Yeah, well, well we, we did see a lot of interest in um, CXL it's the next big thing, you know, there was an awful lot, as a matter of fact, um, Intel sponsored sessions that were just to educate people about CXL. Um, but there were a lot of sessions that weren't a part of that, that also highlighted CXL. Uh, there's just an awful lot of interest in that technology. I find it kind of interesting because CXL does add latency to yeah. your main memory, but um, because of the fact that it supports a really high bandwidth, it's a trade-off of bandwidth and the size of the memory because it supports a larger memory uh, size than you can have uh, direct attached to the processor. So, uh, you know, is it- I heard, it, I was talking yeah, well, to um, a processor guy on, on the CXL consortium and uh, he said there was something that they're trying, you know, the, the challenge is the bandwidth per core, the memory bandwidth per core is starting yeah. to become a bottleneck with just regular DRAM. Yeah, it comes it comes down to like, you know, with, with that, it's like PCI lanes are, are a big component. And one of the interesting things um, that I've seen on some CXL benchmarking is that the latency introduced in it is actually not much different than a multi-socket system. Hmm. So one, one of the interesting, you know, things that, that we've seen hyperscalers looking at is the ability to use single socket systems with CXL enabling them to use DDR4. A lot of new processors are like DDR5, right? And that's when you think of a hyperscaler, you know, changing out, you know, you know, 20 DIMMs is one thing, changing out 200 million DIMMs, that's, that's another <laughs> thing, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a scale issue with those guys. And um, one of the things this allows them to do is is utilize that investment they've got and they've made in DDR4 to get, um, you know, basically a, uh, a a result that is very similar to what having a, a multi-socket system is um, as far as re reusing, you know, a lot of the components that they've already got with newer, uh, newer generation tech. So that's, I think CXL has got, there's a lot of these little corner use cases. It's going to be really interesting to see over the next couple of years, how those corner case, uh, use cases turn into basically kind of killer apps, um, that, that, that CXL could be used for. Well, that's, that's actually, uh, a little bit different from what I've heard. First of all, DDR4, the, the DDR4 versus DDR5, there's no interchangeability between those two. That if you have a processor that communicates with DDR4, it cannot communicate with DDR5. Yeah, right. And if, if your processor behind CXL? 
Jim? If it's behind well, CXL, yes. If it's behind CXL, yes, it can. Yeah, that's then, that's where they're using the CXL piece, okay, right? <laughs> okay, fine then. Yeah, because it does erase the differences. Now, now uh, the the thing that I've really heard from the hyperscalers as to why CXL is good for them is because it gets rid of a problem that they call stranded memory, which is that if you've got, uh, you know, let's just say you've got 128 gigabyte servers and you've got a, a mostly running 32 gigabyte programs. And, uh, you're you know, using only one quarter of the, of the memory. So the rest of the three yeah, quarters is but, sitting but there. Have, but yeah, you have one application that requires 128 gigabytes, but you don't know which server it's going to go on. So all the servers have to be equipped with 128 gigabytes. And so, yeah, you've got an awful lot of, like you say, Ray, just you know, wasted memory. And this is a way of getting that down. And and Jason, what you were saying about the the core, they call them hops, or at least you know that's what I've been mm -hmm. hearing them called. Um, that that is kind of an accurate representation of um, CXL latencies. I think the CXL latency specifications were worked around that, and I know that the guys at Microsoft Azure, um, their exercises to find out whether or not CXL was going to be a good thing for them. Uh, what they did was they just prototyped it using sharing memory on multi-socketed systems. Mm -hmm. Just to see yep. what it would uh, perform like and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. They just use that as a model for how a CXL system would oh, work. Interesting. So it is it, it is effectively what, what a multi-socket system would look like. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. You're kind of, I mean, I think from this latency perspective, when you're talking memory, I mean, it, it's almost like, so we're getting into this tiered kind of memory system, right? Where you've, you think of going from like HBM to, to like a DDR5 and then basically then attaching like DDR4 onto, um, you know, a CXL yeah, bus. Well. It yeah. gets pretty interesting, right? You know, so mm -hmm. now you've got these different tiers of memory that, uh, that then applications could, could be, you know, made aware of it's, it's going to be interesting to see the software developments that actually like make that push forward over the next couple of years. The software guys yeah. were at the show too. I think Memberge was uh, one of the key players there. They've been doing this right. tiered memory with flash actually for quite a while. And, and they're finding that they can take, take advantage of that sort of technology for CXL as well. Yeah. And, and if you're going to be using persistent memory, um, the, the, there are lots of different flavors of persistent memory, not just Optane. There's MRAM and resistive RAM and, you know, uh, ferroelectric memory and phase change memory. And <clears throat> all of those are slower than DRAM, but they're faster than flash. So what do you do with them? Do you stick them in a flash application and squander that extra speed? Or do you uh, slow down your DRAM system so that it can accept right. these guys? And, you know, yep. neither one of so those is good. So you're saying that this might be the, uh, the killer app for these other memories? CXL? Well, there's, you know, something that, that Intel proved with um, Pentium, or I'm sorry, with uh, Optane, was that uh, you've, you've got to produce it in really high volume for it to be cost effective yeah. when, you're, when you're competing against NAND flash and DRAM. And uh, they just weren't able to reach the kind of volumes that it took to drive the costs out of it. And that's, that's something that's going to, you know, work Decide. against MRAM and resistive RAM and all those things. All right. Yeah, I, I, I think software played a big part of that as well, right? The, the fact that to really take advantage of what Optane could offer, like applications had to be written to be Optane aware, mm. to, to really utilize it the way it was designed to be utilized, and mm. nobody did it. Intel made a pretty good stab at trying to make that they, transparent, but it wasn't 
quite all they, the way they there. tried hard yeah <laughs> they yes. tried very hard and yes. uh and it was you know kind of a swing and a miss but um but you know i mean great tech though yeah I oh yeah that. i i just love the technology the engineer side of me is just charmed by that um uh, the the financial side of me looks at it and says it just never could have worked <laughs> right right <laughs> ouch <laughs> okay so what's next on your list jim um chiplets and ucie and um chiplets are okay part of moore's law if you okay moore's moore's law was around a 1965 paper that he wrote and it said we're going to be able to get up to whatever it was 16 kilobits of memory all in the same die and and then in 1975 he was asked to revisit that and he said yeah it looks like you know three things are going on here one of them is the die size keeps growing Another one is the size of the transistors on the die keep shrinking. And a third one is just that we're using them more effectively. And he called that cleverness. And I always think that's pretty cool. But the first one is the one that we have a problem with that chiplets are approaching is that die sizes did keep increasing until around 2010, I think it was. Maybe it was earlier than that. And then they leveled off. And that was when we started seeing you know clock speeds leveling off and core count increasing and all that kind of stuff was people were trying to find a way to get more into a certain size die when the only thing they could do is shrink the transistors they couldn't increase the die size and that was limited by the tools that are made to be used to make the semiconductors um, they have what's called a maximum reticle size and they just don't handle anything any larger than that it's i guess that the cost would end up becoming prohibitive if if they went larger than that so so the die sizes have stopped growing and people are saying, well, how can we grow the die size? And one way of doing it is by moving to multiple chips to do the same as a single chip would do. And um, the, the FPGA manufacturers were the first to do that. I think it was uh, uh, Xilinx that was the first to do that. And um, you know they, they used chiplets and then the uh, processor manufacturers started doing that in the higher end intel and amd processors you know amd was actually first yeah. um they've started using them too and it looks like the whole industry is going to change from doing just big big single chips to doing multiple somewhat smaller chips now the it, the, the yeah. interface you talked about uie is that ucie it's universal chiplet interface yeah. um express yeah is that something that's going to be standardized? I mean, I mean, right now the chiplet interface is probably proprietary. Would be my guess. It is, yeah, and and because of its its proprietary, then if um, AMD is buying a chip from somebody else to use as a chiplet, then it has to use an AMD proprietary interface, and then Intel can't use it, and so that supplier can't sell it anywhere but to AMD. Um, what UCIE does is it frees that up. So that multiple um, companies, you know, including people who make their own chips like Google um, and NVIDIA, companies like that, they, they ought to be able to all use um, a chip from somebody else. And where this really stands to help is in memory chips, which, you know, I always talk about memories, <laughs> but um, uh, well, memory are, chips. Are DRAMs going to be chiplet based? Yeah. Yeah, they're probably going to be just enormous DRAM caches made as chiplets where they'll be trading off the size of the cache versus how slow it is. Interesting. 
And in a way, HBM, high bandwidth memory, is kind of like a chiplet because it mounts very similarly to the things. It's just that it uses um, a different interface than UCIE. And so these guys are typically placed on a chip and on this at the same layer, I guess. They're not like they're going 3D or anything like that, right? They are going 3D. They are going 3D. Yeah, or 2.5D. I get a little bit confused about what's called <laughs> 2.5D and what's called 3D. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, a half a dimension is a hard thing to wrap your head around. Uh, it's yeah, I, I, I work at AMD and I get confused by it, so <laughs> <laughs> I should say a lot. Yeah, I forgot about that, Jason. You, I should let you <laughs> chime in about the you know chiplet uh, use at, uh, at AMD if you need to. And uh, the, not not uh, on a public forum, <laughs> not without an NDA. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, you're not you're not speaking on behalf of AMD here. I suspect. No, that's correct. I'm not. That's okay, correct. fine then. And that's, I'm that's, speaking on behalf of myself. Okay, so so let me say one other thing about UCIE that is kind of cool is that it's using CXL as the communication. What? <laughs> In the chip. Yeah, so it, it's you know two chips right next to each other talking to each other using this this protocol that was developed actually so that you could have um, memory disaggregation and maybe even have all of your memory in a box at the end of a cable. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's crazy. That means yeah. I could be potentially. Uh, yeah, no, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> don't. <laughs> I mean, I could have a whole system on a chip. As if I can't already. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and NAND, too, will be chiplet-based, you think? I'm skeptical myself because NAND is so slow that there's not a, a speed advantage to, to coupling it that closely with the processor. And they already do 3D, so... Yeah, well, you know, and it's it's a different kind of 3D, though. You know, the, the, there's 3D packaging and there's 3D building... Uh, you know, the, the silicon in a 3D way. And that's what NAND Flash does is building silicon that way. I got you. Interesting. Yeah, this UCIE seems pretty impressive. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of sessions on that. You know, I think that it's new enough that a lot of people were attending the sessions just to say, hey, I've heard of it, but I don't understand it. Tell me about it. Right, right, right. Huh. So what's next on your list of top items yeah yeah no i and before the show you and i talked about this list uh, ray so yeah i'm just kind of running through them order the the next one is computational storage and um there's been a lot of talk and a lot of work in the storage networking industry association snia to um to standardize the way that computational storage works and what happened was People looked at SSDs and they said, gee, there's a ton of bandwidth internal to the SSD. And there's a ton of smarts. I can't check. And there are a ton of smarts, yeah. And, you know, what can I do to free up those smarts and free up that bandwidth to be used to offload tasks from the server? And uh, the people come up with these things that are programmable general purpose things that conceivably they could do parts of database program execution and then you could take that out of what, what's going on in the server. And, um, you know, one of the beauties of that is that, that uh, Micron did an experiment that way more than 10 years ago and found out that they could linearly scale. That if you 
wanted to increase the speed at which you did your database processing, you just add smart SSDs right. to to this thing. And you know, if if you had a hundred of them, you'd get a hundred times the performance that you'd get with just one. So it's <laughs> interesting uh, uh, way to to approach that. So so you know, there's been a lot of work going on. Like I say, over the past five years or so, it's Nia trying to um, standardize the protocol and everything with the idea that that people would be using these as general purpose processors. But what seems to be happening instead is that it's entering the mainstream as compressed drives or drives that do video encoding, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. So they're, they're dedicated function drives that are doing things that you probably wouldn't want your processor doing simply because of the fact that it's kind of a waste of resources. Mm. Um, but it's not that you have the processor um, sending uh, tasks to to the ssd to do instead it's just you know it's operating with the ssd like it's a normal ssd and the ssd is doing the compression um it just as as a way of uh saving space reducing wear and that kind of thing um but what's what was really cool was that ibm was uh there uh, presenting at the uh, flash memory summit about what to do about ransomware mm. and IBM has been a huge user of computational storage for compression um, for a number of years. And uh, they, they didn't had... call it computational storage at the time. They just said their their flash modules did compression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they used to say that. But, you know, now now they're saying they're acknowledging that it's computational storage. Right. <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah, they're they're uh, they, they looked at that and they looked at the fact that there was processing performance wasn't being harnessed inside those things and put some great minds to the idea of taking advantage of that to solve problems with ransomware, to actually look for patterns that were known to exist in ransomware and also to look for places where the disk's um, usage patterns were uh, not, not the same as they had been over time. And, you know, just basically sniff out anything suspicious and report it back to the the security software in the server. Um, Interesting. So, so they're starting yeah. to to, uh, to characterize I.O. On, on the, on the, at the SSD level and, and try to understand when it's changing, I guess. Yeah. And if, it, you know, where else, Ray, do they use characterization? There are probably a lot of places other right. than just ransomware. Right. And yeah. I guess I that, mean, that could they, be useful they, in other it's places. It's going to be interesting to see what, you know, AIML implications will come of this as well, right? In computational storage, can you actually have, um, like, you got a video surveillance system, like doing, you know, inferencing on facial recognition or something like that? It'd be yeah. interesting to see. One, one of the computational storage um, companies, um, NGD, used to talk about that a lot. They're, they've run into a funding problem, so I don't even know if they're still with us. But... Um, it, that is certainly something that they could do. But since you mentioned AI and SSDs, something that wasn't a topic, or at least I didn't see it as a topic uh, this year, but I've seen it in other years, I, I think is fascinating is that is the use of very minimal AI functions to manage data placement within the SSD. Right. Using AI? You know, yeah, and, and I, that, that's given me the idea that we're probably gonna see AI pop up in a number of places that are just completely invisible but that somebody finds out that they can use um, a simpler algorithm or maybe get better performance out of cheaper hardware 
by shoving a little AI firmware into what would be a very mundane kind of a program otherwise. Yeah, we had uh, at last, our, our last podcast was on MLPerf, actually last before last, second to last. And they were talking about some edge uh, IoT applications uh, that they've been using. Yeah, it is, it is very interesting to see what they're doing there. Yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised to hear about people writing AI firmware for 8-bit microcontrollers. <laughs> yeah, int 8. <laughs> they yeah. do, mind you, it's there. I yeah. mean, you think about, I mean, you think about this though, like all, all the computing power that can be now thrust into a 2U machine, right? Right. Um, yeah. between, between just the CPUs, a GPU in there, now the, the network cards have DPUs and just say you've got, you know, 24 slots on the front of that thing and each one of those is a processor too. Yeah. I mean, That's already right. in a 2U machine, you've yeah. got, <laughs> you, you could have like, like thousands of cores in a 2U machine. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, <laughs> someday we're going to have thousands of cores in a chip. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I don't know. Maybe NVIDIA already has that. Well, they they have a thousand. They have 4,000 cores on their GPU, but it's, uh, I would say it's, it's like, it's, it's not chips. a, it's not a core. <laughs> well, it's, it's an NPU core kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a SIMD core, which doesn't yeah. count, right? All right, it's not an yeah. x86 core. I got Depends you. who you ask. All right, all right. Yeah, all right. No, I, I'll, I'll give up on that. Yeah, just just one more thing on the AI thing was that there was a speaker that I wasn't, I didn't tell you that I was going to talk about in this. Is, uh, um, Samit Gupta spoke in the last session. Uh, yeah, so just uh, how, what are we doing with AI at Google? Um He's an ex-IBMer who then went to NVIDIA and then from NVIDIA over to Google. Um, very accomplished guy who just knows an awful lot about AI. And he said that um, Google has gotten to the point where they were doubling their um, performance um, every year. And uh, they just didn't see that they could sustainably continue to do that. And so now they're looking to AI to be able to reduce the amount of hardware build out that they need to do and still be able to increase the uh, the the services that they present yeah. to their customers. Huh. You know, and he's for him a billion is a small number. <laughs> yeah. We should all have that problem. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, computational storage. Yeah, I had in-memory processing as the next one on here. Should I move on to that? Go ahead. Yeah, that's that's something that's that's kind of fun because um, what a lot of people are doing uh, in in-memory processing is uh, neural networks, which um, you know what that is is that's just basically doing um, uh, what do you call it? linear math, linear algebra, or you know processing arrays. Um, Vectorized in, processing of uh, yeah. neural network uh, weights. Yeah, you just do it inside of something that's organized like a memory like chip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And these things are great for inference, that is doing the recognition, but for training, they they haven't yet cracked the nut on how to do training on those, and so they still do the training on GPUs. Um, but you know, then that training gets moved over to the neural network and because of the fact the neural networks are really low power, um, they're you know really really cheap, but they're kind of slow. That makes them really good for edge applications. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of that. But there also are you know that's that's 
a neural network kind of um, in-memory processing. There are a lot of people too who are looking at putting a little bit of extra logic onto a conventional digital memory chip and um, using that as a little processing engine. It's the same thing as computational storage, but now it's down at the chip level mm -hmm. instead of being at the SSD level. Well, we have cars at the chip level. I don't know why we need another set of, I always had this struggle is, why do we need another computational element in the, in the, in the IT environment here? We've got cores up the kazoo on the, the, the CPU chip. We've got cores up the kazoo on the, on the GPU. And now we've got cores up the kazoo on the DPU and we're putting cores on the SSDs. Now you want to put cores in the DRAM. Well, heck, if you don't have a core, you're just not it. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh so <laughs> yeah, the, the deal here is, you know, everybody likes to talk about the memory wall. And that basically is um, the fact that you have to move data around so much that it becomes an important part of the power consumption of any data center. And if you can reduce the amount of motion that goes on, which computational storage does, um, and which in-memory processing will do, then you'll end up, you know, this, this example that I use with a database, let's say that you loaded all of a database's information into a computational storage device, um, or if it were a really small database, you could load it into a memory chip. And then the server would just say, now sort this way, now sort that way. And have it sorted <laughs> you know. all, all at in-memory or all at the storage level. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the computational storage SSD would say, "Okay, give me a minute." It would come back to the server and say, "Okay, I'm done. Which which entry do you want out of this new sorted thing?" Yeah, and you think about the applications too. I mean, that has applications where you've got like kind of like a sharded database. Mm. Um, I mean, once again, talking about that two U server. So if I've got twenty four more. Uh, you know, ARM CPUs that may be like four, eight, you know, 16 core. Um, that's, that's actually a lot of processing power you can use to do like some distributed, uh, distributed database, distributed compute. There's, there's all kinds of, I, I can see application related uh, uh, pieces where you could use that. Yeah. When I made that yeah. comment to the DPU guys a couple of years back, they said, it's all about the transfer speed. It's getting to be that the transfer speed is becoming part of the bottleneck here right getting data from point a to point b if you can do it you know without having to go through the cpu you're better served yeah and and the, the, like the the fact that you're just like if a if a packet's coming from a dpu perspective if packet's coming and this machine can't process it have, have that like the dpu reroute it somewhere else yeah. right you know that's kind of like what what you know a lot of the pensando technology does is uh you know pretty cool when it comes down to um, if this machine can't process it, send it exactly to the machine where it can, and, right? And now it's moving to DRAM, which is yeah, yeah. insane. Yeah, well, but, but there's another thing too, Ray, you're talking about, you know, getting the data from here to there. The whole reason why HBM, high bandwidth memory, is popular in GPUs is because of the fact that HBM can deliver a ton of data very quickly to the GPU. All you have to do is to stick it in the same package with the GPU right. and have it be tenths of a centimeter or tenths of a millimeter away from the, the processing yep. chip. Ah, 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 interesting. I always thought What's there was a lot more logic is... to this HBM stuff than just being close. 
Yeah. No, it's it's short signal lines. Yeah. It's yeah. speed of light. Speed of light stuff is you know how do you get the signal that across that little wire faster? Right. You make the, make, wire, make the shorter. wire shorter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know how do how do you how do you drive faster from San Jose to San Francisco? You move San Francisco. Yeah, or move San Jose. <laughs> one of the two. Well, one of the two. You get a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like one of these old ideas that keeps coming back. Yeah, probably yeah. so. The like RFC nineteen twenty five, the twelve networking truth, truth number eleven. Every old idea will be proposed again with a different name and a different presentation, regardless of whether it works. Like yes, I, I think I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, guys. So All right. yeah, but even you, you look back to the Cray one, and the reason why the Cray one was that round shape was so that they could get the back plane to be shorter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And all the wires had to be cut to exactly the same specification. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been there. I've done this stuff. Don't tell me about it. <laughs> Speed of light. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What's next on your list, Jim? Uh, AI. Everybody was talking about AI. And, I was in a uh, session everybody's... with, with uh, a bunch of vendors, and uh, IDC was talking about how AI is impacting storage. It was a quite lively discussion there. Oh, I'm sad that I missed it. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, God, there was people from, well, gosh, there was uh, Infinidat, Hammerspace, uh, Pure Storage, uh, a couple of consultants, I think HPE guy. And uh, <laughs> it was it was a pretty interesting discussion. I, it turns out that, you know, data is getting bigger and getting needs to be moved from place to place. And it's all I don't think there's a segment that is not severely impacted by AI at this point. A segment of IT. I, I agree completely. Yeah. yeah. Data center. I was at uh, uh, Data Center World a couple of months ago, and they were talking about basically the power consumption required to do large language oh, model yeah. stuff. <laughs> it is insane. Yeah. Um, and now everybody's trying to figure out how to rework data center architecture to support to that. To, to support the power requirements that, was, the, that are necessary. There's lots it. of discussion about, you know, the racks are typically configured, I don't know, for uh, 10 kilowatts, and each one of these uh, AI processors takes six or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you can put like one and a half or yeah. maybe two into a rack or something. Yeah. Like the, the, cur the currents are, you know, like, like you said, t 10 to 20 is, is pretty much what most data centers are running. Um, Data centers that, you know, kind of some of the OCP model data centers of some of the hyperscalers are, are kind of in that 50 range. Um, we're already you like kind of kind of projecting that if you want to get basically kind of an AI loaded out rack, it's going to be about 150 K per <laughs> per rack. Ouch. Boy. Yeah. yeah. That's a couple. Yeah. Well, that. If, okay. I'm not really well versed in AI, and my understanding is one of the beauties of AI is that where um, more conventional methods might be able to look and analyze, you know, a handful of variables or dozens of variables and figure out which ones are important and then make decisions based on that, that AI can look at, you know, hundreds of thousands of variables, millions of variables and be able to decide what the trends are based on that a whole lot better. It's it's than, uh, it's like a dimensionality issue. So, uh, you know, typical 
pre-AI solutions could handle, you know, four or five, six dimensional spaces fairly easily. But now with AI, it's n-dimensional. I mean, it can have as many dimensions as you want. The, the LLM, large language models now are hundreds of trillions of parameters. Not every one of those wow. is a dimension, but it's certainly it's certainly sizable. Yeah, but but what that certainly you know what that says too is that that what you said about storage and what Jason was saying about you know the power and you know how how much DRAM gets used in that and all that kind of stuff is probably very proportional to the size of the data set that you're analyzing. Right. Well, everybody's looking at it, especially you know the chip manufacturers who are people I'm very close to, and they're licking their chops. Yeah. Yeah, well, we all are actually in IT business, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, what's next on your list? Um, automotive. And this was something that was kind of like off in its own separate corner, but still attracting a lot of attention, was that it seems like the automobile guys are taking a data center approach to uh, their automobiles. That yeah, in the past, you've had um, different computing complexes that had no communication with each other. You had the engine and transmission that communicated with each other, but they didn't communicate with anything else in the entire automobile. And then you have your dashboard computer and that doesn't communicate with anything. And then you have your entertainment system and climate maybe control. a climate control. Yeah. And you know, you've got your, your safety system and none of those talk to each other. And uh, there's an attempt going on to unify all of that into what they call zonal processing, uh, like different zones of the car. And um, I think it's zone one, zone two, zone three from the front of the car so to I'm the back. I have a local area network in my car if I don't already. Yeah. Oh, they already have it. They call <laughs> it CAN. It's called the Car Area Network. Oh, God. Yeah. And um, it, it makes sense. Okay. One of the things that's been really important in automobiles is to get the weight down because that helps with fuel economy. Right. And um, one of the ways that you do that is by um, minimizing how many wires or in the wiring harness yeah. for your car. So instead of having wires go from the turn signal switch to the turn swing signals in all four corners of the car. Point to point kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, you, you just have a multiplex cable that carries your turn signal data, plus it carries your brake light data, plus it carries your, you know, turn on the taillights because uh, it's dark outside data and the headlights. And all of that ends up just being bits all in a single wire that runs the periphery of the car. Huh. Interesting. So, some cat five going in your car. <laughs> well, Maybe it's, it's a <laughs> Actually, cat five would be a good thing because of yeah. the fact that there no, not cat five. What is you what do is cat it? six, right? You yeah. do cat six a year. No something. fiber. You'd want to do use fiber. fiber yeah. because <laughs> fibers, fiber is lightweight compared to copper. I guess, but there's, there's some problems with transformation of light to electronics and back again stuff. Well, it has to be done, but it doesn't add weight. Mm. And it sells more chips. And so my client, <laughs> you know, they, they really okay. like that. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Anything uh, else? Yeah. Oh, not, not an automotive. Shall I move on to the next? Yeah, I think you should move on. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> before we devolve. Um, so so uh, something that, that I did see as a trend is that, that more and more SSD management is moving to the host. But this isn't something where people say, we're going to move that to the host, like they did with the open channel SSD. Um, but what they're doing instead is they're saying, well, how can we provide data from the host that's going to make it easier for the SSD to perform better? 
and um you know yes there is stuff like the open channel ssd where the the uh the the server can give commands to the ssd saying okay this would be a good time to do garbage collection which the trim command is a little bit um, right. of that and that's right. been around for over a decade but um the the things that people are really talking about now are zone namespaces where the uh mm. server does a better job of um managing where things are put on the ssd key value storage is another one like that and then there are streams and the streams is a really good thing where basically different applications who have different kinds of io uh you know streams whether they're they're serial or highly randomized or whatever those those are managed into different parts of the ssd and, and the and, host is trying to create this sort of framework for being able to tell the SSD that this is stream X or stream Y, and I, I expect it to be sequential and that one to be random. Yeah, and deal with they're, it they're basically hints. And and different interfaces have hooks in them to right. allow for that. So, you know, the, a lot of the, the groundwork for that was done years ago. Um, and now it's just a question of implementation and pulling it into the code. Yeah, I saw that uh, the OCP guys were talking about flexible data placement and its impact on performance and right amplification and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it does, does an awful lot of good stuff. You know, the right amplification means that you don't have to have um, disks that have just, you know, huge uh, drive rights per day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. All right, one more thing, and I think it's time to go. Yeah, well, you know, emerging memories. <laughs> there were a lot of people who were talking about things other than flash memory at the flash memory summit. Yeah, I, and, I, I was really yeah. impressed with those Neo guys, but uh, you're telling me that they don't have prototypes yet. Yeah, their their design right now has been, uh, you know, and there's it's not to discount the um, ability of computer modeling. When I got into the chip business, it was people were laying out chips by hand, and it was not uncommon to go through three revs of a chip before oh, you yeah. had one that really functioned. And now everything works the first time. <laughs> so you know it's just amazing all through modeling yeah 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 all through modeling we used to have know, to do ion stuff. you know patches to chips and stuff like that yeah now now they can do fp full fpga simulations of of very advanced cpu models and no things kidding. like that oh okay i didn't aware i wasn't aware that they could do that that sounds like that would just be wretchedly expensive and it would take a warehouse full of fpgas <laughs> Uh, but, you know, you get to a point where, you, you know, the, the cost of redoing the chip is going to be a, astronomical, right? That's true. As far as I understand, a mask set in an advanced process is well over $10 million. You know, this is this is the things that you actually use in the plant to make the chip. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're kind of like the photographic negatives. Or so whatever. if I want to make a Ray computer chip, I, I, I need $10 million at minimum just to fire something up, let alone uh, yeah. we get to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah, but this is this is if you're using the most advanced processes. Oh, I see. And, I can go one the only level down. Who use only five million? <laughs> something. Well, yeah, kind of like that. There, there aren't very many people who who use those advanced process technologies. They do tend to all be, um, uh, you know, CPU, GPU right. uh, manufacturers, and maybe maybe some of the cell phone guys too. Right. 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 All right. Well, this has been great. Jason, any last questions for Jim before we close? 
No, I mean, I did, you know, it's, uh, I wish I was at flash memory summit this year. It sounds like it was actually an amazing, uh, uh an amazing show. And, uh, uh, unfortunately, I, I was unable to make it with uh, prior prior uh, engagements that I had. But uh, it sounds like there was a lot to uh, to digest and cover. It's it's we hard to cover you when I only be a single person, quite frankly. Yeah, There's so much going on, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. All right, Jim. Anything you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? Uh, you know, I just wanted to mention that um, uh, Coughlin Associates and Objective Analysis, my firm's Objective Analysis, have just recently published a report on emerging memory technologies. So if any of your listeners uh, would like to understand um, both the economics and the technologies of um, magnetic RAM, MRAM, uh, resistive RAM, which is RE-RAM, uh, ferroelectric memory, FRAM, or phase change memory or other new memory technologies, you know, that's all in there. So, uh, you know, just visit the objective analysis website. You'll find Sounds it. Sounds like a great, uh, I'll put a link in the uh, podcast post for that. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for doing that. <laughs> well, this has been great, Jim. Thank you again for being on our show today. Oh, and thanks for inviting me. It's always a delight to be on there. Okay. That's it for now. Bye, Jim. Bye, Jason. Bye, Ray. Bye, Ray. Bye, Jason. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out. 